usf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They're very nice. Asiento. El Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the 5th Annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival, hosting an incredible offside show. Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ plus and allied comics. So come out to 3158 Mission Street at Cesar Chavez, San Francisco. It's open every day at 2 p.m. with an incredible back patio. El Rio is your dive.
Just stand. 
and one now for uh, Lucy. We'll see you later, Lucy, with the new baby. And the little big man.
And good morning, mutineers. You're tuned in to Labor and Love. And this is the B. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, you're on the menu. You're probably out of work now. And finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. If you do, it makes the hard times harder and the good times shorter. Labor and Love Radio, where we tell you how it is, where the labor meets the road. Of course, they don't want you to organize. Of course, they don't want you to have unions. Of course, they don't want you to organize a march on Washington. Your work is making them rich. Every hour that you work makes someone else richer. Okay, so we started out with Lean On Me, and that was playing for change. They had people from all over the world, including South Africa, Los Angeles, Spain, um, looks like Tokyo, playing the same song. You probably heard it here already, or you know about it already. It's called Playing for Change, and any number of great rhythm and blues songs played by people from all over the world, keeping time with one another. Lean on me. I mean, that's all we got now in these trying times. We are all we've got. What got people through the depression was not just government aid. Going through the Depression was a tremendous exercise in mass culture and people, working people, helping one another, pulling each other through, supporting one another emotionally and financially if they could. That's our strength. And then people, you heard Little Richard. Played that one for Lucille. Lucy, that one was for you. Carlina, first one was for you. Well, what do we got today? We got a full schedule. These are all things I hope to get to. Steve Earle just uh, recorded an album, a new album. I want to play some of that for is kind of amazing. The contradictions in capitalist society are becoming more and more obvious. Health workers are being laid off by big corporate hospitals in the middle of the pandemic. More on that later. The situationists and their different analysis Capitalism. This one is consumer capitalism, the society of the spectacle. 
And here a little introduction to those ideas. Malcolm X's birthday, the 19th, was this week. And I want to run a little uh, documentary about Malcolm and talk a little bit about his evolving ideas about capitalism. Um, we got radio labor. We got labor in two minutes, labor history in two minutes. Want to play some more staple singers. Brought to you by R. Charles Morgan. And uh, just talk a little about our general condition. It's obvious now Congress has scaled back the next uh, bailout program. For a while there, you were going to get $2,000 a week to spend, to spend, to get the economy going buy things. Well, that ha didn't happen. Now you're going to get 1200 once again, right? So over a three-month period, say, the government will help some people to the tune of 2400 bucks for three months. Boy, that's living on the edge, especially if you live in the Bay Area or in a place where uh, there's a lot of demand. In many places, you can't collect your unemployment if you refuse to go back to work because of the virus. So your choice is go back to work and risk your life and be a hero, a fuerzas, be forced to be a hero, even if, if you don't want to. Or stay home and basically starve. You know, you're going to get kicked out of your apartment probably. Your food supplies are going to be low. Your wife and kids or your husband and kids or your the people you live with are going to get pinched and angry because they don't have enough to eat and enough money to buy what they have. Let's talk about this because this is the contradictions of capitalism. Hotels are empty. Okay? Hotels are reporting record um, like free space when they open rooms. And at the same time, thousands of people are sleeping on the sidewalk. And thousands of people more will join them soon. Farmers are destroying their crops. I just heard about a, a great crop of lettuce that was plowed under. Farmers destroy crops while people line up for miles on the food line. Medical orderlies and nurses are getting fired in the middle of a pandemic. Now, why is this happening? How can that be? The 
it's because the things that are getting going unused, the hotels, the lettuce crop, the med medical orderlies and nurses are commodities. If you're sitting right in front of that tomato and you're really hungry, you're at a store, you can't just pick up the tomato and eat it. Because while that tomato is on the market, it's a commodity. It's not a tomato. It's not a tomato you can eat. A real tomato is something you can pick up and eat. Put a little salt on it or whatever you want to do. So those crops that are being destroyed are destroyed because they're commodities and the farmers aren't getting paid what it costs to produce them. So if they're not getting paid, if they can take their, it costs more money to take their tomatoes to market or to put them on the market and get back what they, the value that they put into them, the market has to be good. The market's not good. No one is there to buy them. No one is there to pick them. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Where are those farm workers now that we need them? Well, they're, uh, they're in holding pens at the border. They've been thrown out of this country. Their kids are languishing away. because of Mr. Trump and his policies. It's called uh, cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right? They refuse people to migrate here, to do that work. They'll give up the crops. Hotels are empty. Record, record uh, emptiness, empty rates right now. There's nobody to pay to go to the hotels. Nobody wants to go to the hotels now. Nobody wants to go on vacation now. They better not. So the hotels are languishing, and meanwhile, outside, thousands of people are sleeping on the sidewalk without homes. And more and more people are losing their homes because they can't pay the rent. The sky-high rent in San Francisco. When, as a society, will these rich people ever understand that if you bust working people down, there's not going to be anyone to work for you. There's not going to be anyone to buy the crap that comes out of the factories. Medical orderlies and nurses getting fired. People getting fired during a pandemic. Why? Because the hospitals are a business. The labor of those people is a commodity. The company can't pay for the labor. 
The labor goes home. They get fired. Get out of here. Oh, sorry. Of course we need more people. But we can't pay you, so get out of here. You're fired. This is capitalism. Okay, everything is a commodity. That tomato that you're starving person is looking at. That warm bed in the hotel room, place to sleep, is a commodity. And the labor of nurses, orderlies, and other medical personnel is a commodity. At any rate, that's what's happening. All these things are happening now. I used to read sometimes in the histories of the 30s that, oh, people were throwing out milk because they couldn't sell it. Oh, and we'd always think, geez, you know, how bad is that? Well, we're there again. <laughs> This is the B, and this is labor and love, and we're coming to you from 2781 21st Street, bringing you the real deal, labor and love radio, labor news, commentary, history, stories by, for, and about working people, plus Music of social significance. Okay. Now, if you've listened to this show, you've heard of Beverly Watkins. Here she is on her 78th birthday. Playing the hell out of some blues. see here. Beverly Guitar Watson. No, not Watson. Beverly Guitar Watkins. Start this over. We're going to do justice to Beverly White. Y'all ready for all the blues?
Uh, speaking of transnational corporations, uh, you know, I can remember a long time ago when Nike uh, was just sort of getting started. And I was really sort of impressed by this, you know, little company up in uh, Oregon uh, uh, that was uh, producing these shoes. I was just beginning to uh, uh, run uh, in those days. And, and my first pair of running shoes were Nikes. And I got attached to Nikes. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I sort of convinced myself that I that I can't run without my Nikes. <laughs> uh, you know, Nike Air, Nike Air Max, Air Max Square. Um, um, but I think I've bought my last pair of Nike running shoes. And it's actually you know, quite uh, interesting that uh, people like Michael Jordan uh, and, of course, Tiger Woods. You know, Tiger Woods what, has a $40 million contract with Nike. Isn't that right? <laughs> Something like that. Um, but at the same time, you know, Nike is, is in Indonesia creating working conditions that are worse in many respects than slavery. 
and in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, Nike has a factory in Ho Chi Minh City. Not long ago, there was an investigation of that particular uh, factory, and it was discovered that the women, and we're talking about women as well, who manufacture these shoes, that the women working in the Ho Chi Minh City factory were not only paid less than the minimum wage there, which is a couple of dollars a day, you know, $2.50 a day. How much do you pay for your Nikes? One of the women workers there described an incident during which um, uh, some of the women came into work wearing the wrong shoes. Apparently they're supposed to wear indoor shoes and outdoor shoes, interesting shoes. They came in wearing the wrong shoes. They were severely punished. They were forced to run. How ironic. They were forced to run for several hours around in a circle, around the factory, until a number of the women collapsed. Some of the women had to be taken to the emergency, had to be taken to the hospital, and that's just one incident. I mean, if you read the entire report, you would be um, amazed that, that, that people are treated this way in this age. So what does Nike do? They go down and ask Andrew Young, another black man, to be their spokesperson in connection with this investigation. Um, I think we need to talk about uh, an organized boycott of Nike. You know, and maybe, I mean, I do, I really do. Is anybody here on the uh, basketball team? Because I know basketball teams usually swear on their Nikes, don't they? And I was talking to, uh, do you know Michael Fronte? Have you ever heard of the group Spearhead? Okay, I was talking to Michael Fronte the, uh, Fronte the other day, who is the person who started the group, and uh, the, you know, the lead singer, um, lead rapper. He, uh, he uh, said that, uh, you know, he plays ball. And he decided that he was going to try to organize the people he plays basketball with, you know, to stop buying Nikes. I think we need a, I think we need a global boycott. Not that the other companies treat their workers any better, they probably don't, but if we can't find a way to point out concretely, you know, what is happening, um, then, you know, we'll all continue to wear exploitation on our bodies without even being conscious of it. I mean, in a sense, we can't avoid wearing it because the clothes we wear, um, you know, are generally produced, there's a, there's a global assembly line, right? Uh, but at least we can be conscious of it. At least we can, in some way, um, participate in efforts to uh, reveal what is going on and hopefully transform it. People have often asked me over the years, how did you become an activist? Okay, that was Angela Davis on Nike. And uh, right now, I want to play a little documentary.
about the life and times of Malcolm X. Malcolm X's final years, it's called. And here's where we get into Malcolm X's developing critique of capitalism and its connection to the racism that he reviled against. And all of my travels was that uh, all of the Africans, not only the Africans, but the Asians and the Muslims, look upon us as their long-lost brothers. And America had actually tricked many of them uh, into uh, a hands-off policy by giving them the impression that she was honestly trying to do something to solve the problem. My argument over there was designed to prove that it is impossible for the United States government to solve the race problem. It's impossible. Are you prepared to work with some of the leaders of the other civil rights organizations? Certainly. Certainly. We will work with any uh, groups, organizations, or leaders in any way, as long as it's genuinely designed to get results. Salam alaikum. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. It's very sad that he was assassinated when he was because he was in the process of making um, amazing transformations. There's a worldwide revolution going on. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. Malcolm is overlooked in, 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 in that, as one of the pantheons of, uh, of, of black liberation. What is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? An international Western power structure. Malcolm grew up in... Uh, a two-parent household initially, two-parent household in, in Nebraska, where his father was a, a preacher of sorts, working for the United Negro Improvement Association under Marcus Garvey um, uh, auspices. And he was um, a, a powerful, fiery, strong father, husband, uh, and political leader. While Malcolm was in Harlem, he engaged in a lot of uh, petty criminal activities with his running buddy Shorty. Uh, when he went to Boston, they uh, created a burglary ring and they were robbing houses. And uh, he got caught at some point and went to prison for that. When he was released from the prison system, he became an active member of the Nation of Islam. Mr. Muhammad teaches us that uh, man is judged by his conscious behavior and the conscious behavior collectively of the white race toward non-white people has been a, the type of behavior that is uh, practiced only by a devil or devils. So then in essence you feel that white men per se are devils? He teaches us that God told him that the white race is a race of devils. Well, it's just not things we're used to down here. I mean, they come in and they sit down and we're not used to them sitting down beside us because I wasn't raised with them. I never have lived with them and I'm not going to start now. The Nation of Islam, for whatever its failings or shortcomings or flaws are or were, existed in a very hostile environment where the country's most, the world's most powerful intelligence apparatus began targeting this and affiliated groups uh, to destroy them. The messenger of the Lord of the world, the most honorable 
like the Nation of Islam, and then this, again, serendipitous, never-to-be-repeated mistake of the mainstream press giving him a platform. Uh, Malcolm rose to a level of prominence in this country and around the world that, that I think a, a leader of that kind could never expect today. What is your real name? Malcolm. Malcolm X. Uh, is that your legal name? As far as I'm concerned, it's my legal name. Have you been to court to establish that I you don't, are? I, I didn't have to go to court to be called Murphy or Jones or Smith. Excuse me for answering you this way. That's if all right. a Chinese person were to say his name was Patrick Murphy, uh, you would look at him like he's insane because uh, Murphy is an Irish name, uh, a European name, or the name that uh, has a Caucasian or, or a white background. And a yellow person, Chinese is a yellow man, and uh, he has nothing to do or no connection whatsoever with the name Murphy. I think people don't give Malcolm enough credit for the organizing that he did, even within the nation. He basically helped build that organization from the ground up, went to city after city, uh, inspiring people, getting people to organize, creating structures, uh, creating teams, uh, getting folks to be dedicated in terms of their lives to a given vision. We don't care what your religion is. We don't care what organization you belong to. We don't care how far in school you went or didn't go. We don't care what kind of job you have. We have to give you credit for shocking the white man by not letting him divide you and use you one against the other. There was this question that emerged within the nation of, well, he's getting a little too popular. He's making Elijah look bad. He's this, that, and the third. But what also has to be remembered is that the counterintelligence program of the FBI was encouraging this through their own letter writing campaigns and their own uh, 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 planting of agents within the Nation of Islam and elsewhere were encouraging a dissent, uh, a, a dissension rather, between Malcolm and Elijah Muhammad. President Kennedy, uh, I believe you call him a trickster? He has to be a trickster. Even if he's the president, that doesn't stop him from being a trickster if he's making tricks. Anytime a, 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 president, a man running, running for president tells Negroes uh, what he's going to do for them when he gets in office, and after he gets in office, he has time to do something for everybody else except the people that put him in office, he tricked the people who put him in office. The idea that Kennedy represented the new America, uh, the more tolerant America, or the more helpful America, the image that was promoted about Kennedy right there. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Malcolm's critique of Kennedy was that he didn't represent anything except the ruling elite. History proved that he was right. That same phenomenon reoccurred several years ago with President Obama. He has the time to take a stand against U.S. Steel, against Castro, against Khrushchev, against Laos and South Vietnam and all these other places all over the world. But when it comes to time to correcting the injustices that are being inflicted against Negroes in this country, Kennedy sits up there like Nero. He's fiddling while Birmingham is burning. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. 
Well, this is certainly a shocking and frightening expression of the sickness of our society and the deep hatred that pervades so much of our society. And I think this reveals that we have in certain sections of our country uh, a barbaric expression. People asking questions, well, the Nation of Islam talks tough, but they're not on the front lines of any of these struggles here. Uh, we see students, we see CORE, we see eventually SNCC, we see SCLC, we see all these other mainstream civil rights organizations on the front line, they're getting beaten, they're getting arrested, and the Nation of Islam, with all its organization and strength, talks a big game, but nobody's directly engaging. Uh, and Malcolm started to raise certain questions. As long as they thought that uh, Martin Luther King had things contro under control in Birmingham, Kennedy didn't see fit to send any troops down there. As long as the dogs were biting little black babies and, bla and black women and black children, Kennedy never thought of sending any troops into Birmingham. It was only after the Negroes showed that they were fed up and they, that they were capable of uh, retaliating uh, against the injustices that were being afflicted, inflicted upon them by the whites that Kennedy called for the troops. It drew some stark lines about who was really working for the interests of black people, who was capitulating, uh, who was getting what deal in order to continue being black leadership, who was getting money even. President Kennedy has been the victim of an assassin's bullet in Dallas, Texas. It is not known as yet whether the president survived the attack against him. Immediately, a Secret Service man said he saw blood spurt from the president's head. He fell into the laps of Mrs. Kennedy, and Mrs. Kennedy shouted, Oh, no. I remember the moment. I remember that day on, on, on November 22nd. I remember how it came over the loudspeaker and how all of us who had, had opposed a position, a great deal of hope in Kennedy, were overwhelmed. We just have a report from our correspondent, Dan, rather in Dallas, that he has confirmed that President Kennedy is dead. I've been silent for the past 90 days because of uh, some statements I made concerning the President of the United States. Uh, which were distorted. They were distorted. And, yes. And what did you say, Malcolm? Well, I said the same thing that everybody says, that uh, his assassination was the result of the climate of hate. But only, I, only, only I said the chickens came home to roost. This statement is from Messenger Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Muslims in America. Uh, Minister Malcolm Shabazz, addressing a public meeting, did not speak for the Muslims when he made comments on the death of the president, John F. Kennedy. He was speaking for himself and not Muslims in general. And Minister Malcolm has been suspended from public speaking for the time being. The American apartheid, that's what he was saying, is that this is a response to all of the indignities and all of the brutality that you've delivered to black America. When Malcolm accepts the silencing, he accepts the punishment, he hears more and more about uh, his negative relationship and place within the nation. And these reports that Malcolm X has been marked for death, uh, you say, are spread by Malcolm X himself? That is his source of propaganda to stay in the press. He has no other means of reaching the press. He doesn't have a program. He's trying to reduplicate something that has been tried over the years by other so-called Negro leaders. Learning of Elijah Muhammad's indiscretions hurt Malcolm X. I mean, Elijah had become a father figure the Nation of Islam itself had become a family. 
as he would say later, you know, the people who he thought were being sent to kill him were people he met or trained or prepared to do that kind of work within the nation. I feel responsible for having played a major role in developing a criminal organization. It, it, it was not a criminal organization at the outstart. It was an organization that had the power, the spiritual power, to reform the criminal. And, and this is what you have to understand. As long as that strong spiritual power was in the movement, it gave the, it gave the moral strength to the believer that would enable him to rise above all his negative tendencies. I know, because I, I, I went into the movement with more negative tendencies than anybody in the movement. Malcolm didn't leave the nation. The nation left Malcolm. The, the nation told Malcolm, you were out. And Malcolm tried to sort of come back in the nation and figure out ways in terms of his relationship with Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the time, to bring him in and try to get back into the nation. It was only as after many attempts that he realized that his status within the nation was never going to be, re he was never going to be reinstated. I, for one, disassociate myself from the movement completely and I dedicate myself to the organizing of black people into a group that are interested in doing things constructive, not for just one religious segment of the community, but for the entire black community. The efforts to silence him began very soon after he announced his break. The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying Instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom in the Irish neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood, we need to, we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. All through that last year, uh, Elijah Muhammad was chafing at the inability of his people, the fruit of Islam, the sort of paramilitary uh, wing of the, uh, of the nation of Islam. Uh, their inability to kill Malcolm. Today I'm speaking for myself. Formerly I spoke for Elijah Muhammad. And everything I said was, Elijah Muhammad teaches us thus and so. I'm speaking now from what I think, from what I have seen, from what I have analyzed and, and the conclusions that I have reached. The last meeting I had with him, he said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no longer a black nationalist. So I said, well, what do you call yourself? He says, I'm an internationalist. Malcolm, just to prepared to go into the United Nations at this point and ask that charges be brought against the United States for its treatment of American Negroes? Oh, yes. Uh, oh, yes. Please. I think you're right in my camera. The audience will have to be quiet. <laughs> uh, yes, the, as I pointed out when I was in, during my traveling, that nations look, African nations and Asian nations and Latin American nations look very hypocritical when they stand up in the United Nations condemning the racist practices of South Africa and that which is practiced by Portugal and Angola and saying nothing in the UN about the racist practices uh, that are, that are uh, manifest every day against Negroes in this society. Later on in, in those last months, when he made his, his other trips to Africa, and that he had begun to realize that in terms of how, how we in this country uh, describe black or uh, describe black uh, nationalism uh, was not, uh, did not fly very well. It's not a case of being good and bad, good or bad, 
blacks and whites. It's a case of being good or bad human beings. He's exposed uh, to, to political leadership, radical political leadership all over the world. He does have to raise these questions, well, if they're white, and at least what we would call white, and leading uh, North African revolutionaries and they're, and they're Muslims, we can't just say that they're all blue-eyed devils. Do you feel that, that your message, uh, uh, apparent message of love that you brought back from Islam is, is the real reason they're after you, because you're not hating as hard as they want you to? Well, I never did hate anybody hard. Uh, but, I, but I do know that when I wrote that letter saying that there were white people in Mecca, it shook up a lot of Muslims, because most of the Muslims who follow Mr. Muhammad absolutely believe that it was impossible. Physically impossible, I should say divinely impossible, for a white person to go to Mecca. In 1964, Malcolm was projected as the dick, the devil figure, in terms of, you know, uh, the liberation. You have to put into the context of the times. This is the height of the so-called Cold War. Propaganda, tremendous propaganda war between the Soviet Union and the United States. In 1964, when the UN debates on the Congo, two African diplomats, for the first time in history, when they were making, making their speeches, they say if the United States has the right to intervene in the Congo, who's to say that we don't have the right to intervene to help to protect black people from what is happening in Mississippi? That was unheard of. Malcolm, do you intend to lead the charge uh, in the United Nations? Well, I, I find that to say you're going to lead something creates a lot of hostility, division, jealousy, and envy. Uh, I hope to, to work with any group of leaders or any group of organizations to do whatever is necessary to see this problem is brought before the United Nations. At about 3.15 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, uh, there were about 400 persons present in the ballroom here representing an organization known as uh, the Afro-American Unity Organization, uh, headed up by Malcolm X. He sustained one shot uh, in the uh, lower right chin and the other six hit him in the uh, chest and uh, body. I saw people crawling on the floor. I saw, and so I got down too. Then when I was looking out, and I saw um, someone uh, look in amazement to the front. I knew they had shot my husband. He raised his hand and uh, a Muslim greeting. Salaam Alaikum. At that point, uh, I, I heard a rumbling behind me, and I turned around in my seat to, to see what it was. Then we saw, like, I saw two guys standing up, and the next thing, Malcolm had his hand up. He had said, he said, stay cool, stay calm. Just then, the gunfire went off, and his, his hand was up. I remember this. I turned around quickly, and the next thing I saw was Malcolm falling back in a dead faint. Malcolm X mean to you? It means a great deal to me and my people. I'm sorry that a good man is gone. At the first I hear of it, I couldn't have cried anymore, I don't believe, if I had lost my mother. What did he mean to you? Can you tell me a bit more about it? He meant deliverance for my people. And I hope we all walk in the same footsteps as Malcolm X was walking in.
a hero to me. He stood out among all black people. Why That's he right showed Dwight man where was that. Why, right. why was he, he a got hero respect. Too. Why was he offered in Princeton and all these big white universities? Because they respected him too, the way I respect him. Uh, last year, like Roy Wilkins said, he changed. He wanted to get along with the white people. But you people didn't want to get along with us. Who do you believe is responsible for Malcolm X? The white death? power structure in America is behind it. They, and they, they are quick to capitalize on it by saying that uh, one of his own kind did it. But they put it up to do, be done. What do you mean, the white power structure? The white power structure of America. They know they had more to gain by getting Malcolm X out of the way than, than they had by letting him live. That's but, why I but, say. But what is the white power structure? Never mind. I just said the white power structure. You know the white race, don't you? Three members of the Nation of Islam got locked up for Malcolm X's assassination, but there was always some questionable doubt of other agencies or government agencies. Since the death of Malcolm X, have you encountered any serious trouble or do you expect any serious trouble? I have not encountered any uh, serious trouble and I don't expect to uh, uh, account with any serious trouble from Malcolm's death. Do you? This uh, death of Malcolm uh, God himself had something to do with that. There's COINTELPRO documents in which the FBI takes credit for feeding the feud between Malcolm and the Nation of Islam. So I definitely think the United States government uh, takes responsibility. And unfortunately, I think the Nation of Islam takes responsibility because the killers came from within and the atmosphere created by leadership in the nation allowed that assassination to go forward. So brothers and sisters, we are known for having the most peaceful meeting of any large group of people in America, and we intend to continue to have it. So now that everything is back to order, we shall proceed. When Malcolm was assassinated, he was trying to deal with capitalism as one big issue. How does capitalism affect black folks? Um, how does that economic system compare to other economic systems? Um, and even if we lived under a capitalistic system, remember he at one point he said uh, all capitalists were bloodsuckers. And at another point he said also that uh, his friends were socialists, communists, capitalists, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So I think he was still wrestling with knowing the kind of economic system that we live under and that everybody mostly lives under across the world. Malcolm was a real threat. And um, you know, regardless of what the particular details might be around his assassination, it was so clear that uh, the power structures uh, 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 did not want to see Malcolm and and all of those who identified with him continue in, in that um, um, path toward internationalism, uh, linking our struggles in the U.S. with struggles in Africa, with struggles in the Middle East, with struggles in Asia and, and, and Latin America. That was the real threat. Uh, and I think that uh, had Malcolm not been assassinated, uh, that he would have urged uh, many more people to uh, develop that kind of international um, perspective. You feel, however, that uh, that we're making progress in, in this country no, and worldwide? No, no, no. I'm, I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. If you pull it all the way out, that's not progress. 
The progress is healing the wound that the blow that the blow made. If anything, that's what we've seen. The nine-inch knife has been, you know, slightly removed a little bit over the last few decades, and uh, or maybe I would argue adjusted in its place within our back. And what we have to do is not accept what we're being encouraged to accept as as progress. Um, as progress, we have to accept, we have to develop our own standard for what that would look like. And then if it doesn't reach that, we don't accept it as progress. There's a worldwide revolution going on. It goes beyond Mississippi. It goes beyond Alabama. It goes beyond Harlem. What is it revolting against? The power structure. The American power structure? No. The French power structure? No. The English power structure? No. Then what power structure? an international Western power structure. So there you have it. Um, Malcolm X, a prophet if there ever was one for people who believe in social justice. interesting thing is Malcolm X for all I mean, never stopped being a black nationalist maybe right at the end he said he was moonbound um, that was his motivation that's what he was in it for and he began to at towards the end of his life broaden his point of view broaden his his uh, philosophy. Show me a communist and I'll show you a blood... Pardon me. <laughs> show me a capitalist and I'll show you a bloodsucker, he wrote. And he said, you can't have capitalism without racism. So he was developing an international analysis moving, perhaps, moving towards a labor-based analysis as an issue that could unite people all over the world? Who knows? He was killed, and like Angela Davis said, he had to be killed. He had to be killed. His analysis was too coaching. He was too sure of himself. He based his, his approach, his politics, on the experience of his people. And that you can't, you know, you can debate, but you can't, can't beat. Listen to some jazz. Be right back.
Okay, we're back, uh, and it's time for Radio Labor, a worldwide labor report. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report, recorded on Friday, May 22nd, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, a global union calls for radical change in the world economic order. How women workers in male-dominated sectors are disproportionately hit by the pandemic. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. A woman's place is in her union. We organize and stand for equal rights. This is Radio Labor. Going back to normality cannot mean go back to what we have before. That is Rosa Pavanelli, the General Secretary of Public Services International. The PSI is the global union which represents national public service unions at the world level. She was speaking in a webinar organized by the Transnational Institute. The Institute is a progressive advocacy organization based in the Netherlands. Ms. Pavanelli told the webinar participants that the COVID-19 pandemic has shown that there is a great need to rethink the global economic order. We have been witnessing in these past two months many commitments, many statements, many positions expressed by different political leaders and government stating that it was no longer possible possible to continue as it was previously. But at the same time, when business starts knocking at the door and asking for reopening the economy, saving business, and asking people to choose between health and job, well, we see that the balance is not in our favor. Of course, the growth of unemployment and the risk of an economic disaster, much worse than the 2008 financial crisis, is something that we are very much concerned. And as trade union, we need to try to, to counter. But rather than pushing to reopen business as usual, as they were before, we should start pressing our government advocating for a change in the economic direction of our economies. And when we see that this pandemic has shown the failure of the global neoliberal system, I think that we need to look also to the impact that this has created not only on the capacity of our economy to sustain their communities, the people, or to provide the adequate care that patients in a pandemic need, but also the weakness, how fragile is also the global division of labor. Governments in the developed world have been outsourcing the manufacturing of low technological production to developing countries just because it was cheaper 
to employ workers there or exploit workers. That's the reality. And when a pandemic happened, like this one, we immediately saw that facing the same threat, all the governments tried to give the same response. And those who were producing masks, uh, PPEs, uh, protection for workers, ventilators, tried to keep for their needs, for their the epidemic in their countries, as well as the closure of the border, have shown how weak is a distribution system that is based on this kind of global division of labor. Going back to normality cannot mean go back to what we have before. And that's required that we, as a civil society organization, trade unions and workers, have to be bolder and more radical. The pandemic is affecting women workers much more differently than men. See Marie Ainsborough reports. There is growing evidence that women workers are being disproportionately affected by the pandemic. That is why the International Trade Union Confederation recently organized a webinar to discuss the issue. The ITUC is the body which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trade Union Congress at the world level. The webinar was moderated by the director of ITUC's Equality Department, Chidi King. She introduced one of the webinar's participants. We are going all the way to Australia. Michelle Myers is on the ITF Women Transport Workers Committee. She is the vice chair. And Michelle is an ex-dock worker, now a union official, and a member of women in male-dominated industries, as well as wearing um, quite a few other hats. Michelle, what does a gender-blind COVID-19 response look like in a male-dominated sector? How does it exacerbate existing inequalities for all women workers, but specifically for women workers in male-dominated industries? Thanks, Chidi. You know, there's uh, a lot of inequalities in male-dominated industries, and they have been around for quite a long time. But this pandemic is bringing out those and, and making things much worse. A number of areas are, you know, just access to safe and decent work, lack of representation, the impact of technology and gender-based violence. You know, those things are at an alarming scale. Transport jobs are stubbornly highly segregated by gender. The use of technology to replace transport jobs is nothing new. But now there seems to be a rush on doing that under the guise of preventing virus transmission in India, most recently, women working on buses concentrated as conductors, while drivers are mostly male. One state employer has already implemented driver-only night buses. So these initiatives will permanently impact women's jobs. I guess in Australia, I mean, we have been under, you know, the same constraints as all of the other sisters have said, border closures and all those sorts of things. We have seafarers in my union that can't get to another state to join a vessel. We have buses and trains in Australia have picked up extra workers for cleaning and more frequent cleaning, but then some of the routes have dropped off and obviously less people are catching public transport. So those are some of the issues that are happening. Aviation, one of our biggest airlines, Qantas, stood down 20,000 workers in March and then they went to the courts to try and fight so they don't have to pay sick leave. I guess PPE has always been an issue in our male-dominated industries. You know, PPE is usually made for the men that work in those industries. And that's, you know, that's been exacerbated now, obviously, and that needs to be, you know, one of the top priorities for us going forward. According to um, the ILO's COVID workplace impacts in civil aviation, violence and harassment has been a big issue globally. 
episodes of passenger rage. Women are concentrated in these customer-facing roles, so they're most likely to, you know, bear the brunt of, of these incidents. Lack of representation in transport makes it very difficult for women's, women workers' issues to be heard. 98% of European truck drivers are men. The long-standing issue of sanitation is now more critical than ever to provide access for all workers, but especially women. You know, truck drivers used to stop at cafes or restaurants to use facilities. In Australia, we had to lobby to keep truck stops open so that people had, you know, facilities to go to for sanitation and for hand cleaning and those sorts of things. So there's definitely been plenty of impacts in that area. I just wanted to go back to Ayola's um, question about, you know, the government changing the laws about the right to protest and, and whatever under the cover of while everyone's busy worrying about this. I think we've got to be really, really careful that we don't take our eye off the ball. We have a conservative government in Australia and, you know, if, if while we're trying to maintain workers' jobs and try and keep people in work, you know, what else are they up to? Do you know what I mean? It's, it's one of those, we just have to be really careful not to take our eye off the ball. Like, like what Ayola said, taking away the right to some trade union rights while they've been busy doing other things. It's critical to ensure the visibility of women no matter what we're doing. We need to break down the data by gender and ensuring that women are leading and participating in COVID response decision-making at all levels. Equitable policies and interventions need to be having women in the room. We just need to be in the room and we need to be at the table. There should be no policy making without the contribution of women. More information about the effect of the pandemic on women workers can be found at the Confederation's website at ituc-csi.org. This is C. Marie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a small sample of all of their hard work. Our top stories sections included links to coverage of the call for a general strike in Ecuador over the government's plan to use social benefits funds paid for by workers to rescue businesses hit by the pandemic. A national survey by the Australian Council of Trade Unions that revealed that less than 10% of Australian workplaces have effective COVID-19 measures in place as that country ends its lockdown. In non-pandemic-related global news, unions around the world are taking legal action against McDonald's over the sexual harassment that is endemic in its restaurants. We also had news of strikes and lockouts in dozens of countries. Here are just a few highlights. Tunisian garment workers walked off the job in an effort to get the leaders of their union reinstated. Healthcare workers in Barbados held a flash strike of non-critical duties, which won them weekly pandemic updates. Despite or even because of the pandemic, around the world, unions continue to organize. Bolivian healthcare workers continued to work but went on a hunger strike to demand personal protective equipment and more ventilators for patients. The same concerns motivated Belgian hospital workers to line up at the entrance to their workplace and turn their backs on the country's prime minister as she arrived for an official visit and the union representing almost a half a million auto rickshaw drivers in Mumbai is trying to organize food and other supplies for its members, all of whom are off the roads as the Indian lockdown continues. 
We even had some good COVID-19 news this week as the PIT-CNT in Uruguay reported that volunteers, members of 16 different unions and working safely, had distributed 40,000 food packages last week to workers hit hard by the pandemic. Attacks on basic labor rights are rare in Iceland, but one seems underway right now as an airline is attempting to displace the union representing flight attendants in that country. Our Working Women pages included stories about the Women Workers and COVID-19 webinar series launched by the Global Unions this week, the abuse and threats directed at the Women on Strike against Notimex, the Mexican national news agency. While in Spain, domestic workers are organizing for safe workplaces and their inclusion in that country's income replacement scheme as COVID-19 has hit them, almost all of them women, hard. The union's membership is expanding rapidly as a result. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for our, that's yours and mine, solidarity with a Cambodian trade union leader imprisoned for criticizing her employer for its response to the COVID crisis. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Lisa Hyde of Union Nation with A Woman's Place. That's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger from Radio Labor. 
It's important to remember our past, but only because it helps us face the present to make the future, and the future's always coming. Here's Benny Esguera and gang with Solidarity Forever, the new millennium version. Uh, no more division, no, we're bringing a new vision, and it's just in time from ashes we get birth, a new tradition, solidarity forever with the new millennium flavor. Now we're resurrecting it, one century later, keep our feet fixed on the past, in order to stay rooted in our minds, eye on tomorrow, so that today we get through this, so that one day we're victorious, so just gather now, come here. Divisions are created by those who doubt and fear, we give thanks to all the workers who put it all on the line, those who took it to the streets, moving crowds with conscious rhymes, those who gave their lives, give thanks to those who made lost, lost only work for those who make them not break them be patient the best way to protect your rights is by always knowing your rights without our brain and muscle not a single wheel can turn so put your hands together all under one umbrella it's time for unity solidarity forever Your money's being hoarded and the people are unsupported Social welfare's been aborted, labor crimes go unreported When we try to fight back, it seems we can't afford it We try to be united, but they're implementing laws that are keeping us divided They're commodifying labor, then they're bidding for the lowest They're thinking that it's clever, but we know it's something better Solidarity forever Now jobs are disappearing and all we're ever hearing is Pay a lot more, get paid a little less Work a little harder, then work a little longer But we're taking it no longer We're decided we're uniting Cause together we are stronger The unions got a back CBAs, protections, better wages, a fact So we're making our choice And we're making some noise We're walking with poise And we're raising our voice We're singing of Solidarity Forever was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Saving lives or saving markets? Apparently, that's a tough choice. I'm Francesca Fiorentini, and this is Newsbroke's Helter Shelter series, coming to you from my one-bedroom LA apartment, which, after three weeks of self-quarantine, I have converted into my very own post-apocalyptic Pee-wee's Playhouse. Today's secret word is... Sacrifice! Now, you all know what you need to do when you hear the secret word, right? Scream! Today we're looking at how defeating coronavirus will mean deflating the Dow. 
And yet accepting that reality is something the president and the hardline conservatives advising him are trying to prevent at all costs. Yes, even our lives. There still is yet to be a nationally coordinated effort to end the pandemic through mass testing, mass production of medical supplies, or nationwide lockdowns, which many experts say need to happen for months. That's partially why the U.S. has the most cases of coronavirus so far in the world, and counting. Instead, Trump first floated the idea of loosening social distancing restrictions by Easter Sunday, because there's no better way to celebrate Jesus than by letting millions meet him in the afterlife. Trump then graciously agreed to extend the CDC guidelines to April 30th. Now, maybe that was based on science, but it was probably because he realized Tiffany was going to be visiting for Easter, and you know that would have been an awkward encounter. Oh, wonderful, we can all hug again. Yes, Tiffany, right after the egg hunt. Is she still looking at me? Either way, press conference after press conference has proven that Trump's brain truly is a magnificent cocktail of ignorance to the reality of COVID-19 and callous disregard for the human lives it claims. If we can hold that down, as we're saying to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between 100 and 200,000. Uh, we all together have done a very good job. Okay, first of all, that's not even an achievable number without nationally coordinated action. And secondly, that's not a number to brag about. Also, rest assured that no matter how many people die from coronavirus, Trump will absolutely claim he did a good job. Compared to the Black Plague, we're doing great. Compared to the Spanish flu, we're doing fantastic. Compared to the meteor that wiped out all the alleged dinosaurs, we're winning big league. But Trump's thinking is honestly more sinister than crass. Because there's one number that he and his cronies, and even media pundits, care a lot about. The stock market. And they talk about its recent slide using an alarming metaphor. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the bleeding. Stop the economic bleeding. Global markets just cannot shake the coronavirus. How will the president try to stop the bleeding? Yeah, the market's bleeding so much, you wonder if it's on its period. Because <laughs> she is moody. Am I right? Am I? No? No? Insensitive? It's almost like they care more about markets bleeding than people bleeding. Newsbroke has looked at the stock market before and how it's just a legal casino that gambles away our future so Jerry from Fidelity can get bottle service. The stock market isn't a good indicator for a healthy economy, given that 84% of all stocks owned by Americans belong to the wealthiest 10% of households. Yet, when it comes to coronavirus, the market seems to be the only measurement that worries conservatives. This at a time when the Fed estimates we may hit 32% unemployment, which tops unemployment numbers during the Great Depression. But who cares? How's your portfolio? In fact, some have been letting their free market flag fly a little too high, like Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. We can't lose our whole country. We, we're having an economic collapse. Uh, let's get back to work. Let's get back to living. Let's be smart about it. Uh, and those of us who are 70 plus, we'll, we'll take care of ourselves, but don't sacrifice the country. Sacrifice? He said the secret word! <laughs> what is he saying? That seniors should be left to fend for themselves like some AARP Thunderdome? The first senior to master TikTok shall be granted a ventilator. The same sentiment was echoed by radio host and less accomplished Tiger King, Glenn Beck. I'm in the danger zone. I would rather have my children stay home and all of us 
who are over 50 go in and keep this economy going and working even if we all get sick i'd rather die than kill the country no don't say that what would we do without you just so we're clear these guys are saying they're willing to kill themselves and millions of others all to please the all-powerful line graph representing the invisible hand of the free market how is this not a cult i'm starting to think jim jones didn't actually die he just changed his first name to dow because like dow jones it's a stock market this morbid cynicism of putting the economy or rich people's poker chips before human lives isn't just something media commentators have expressed. It's what's guiding the Trump administration's response to coronavirus and the money attached to it. The $2 trillion stimulus package has both Wall Street and lobbyists licking their chops. Even though there are stipulations and oversight committees on the money, Trump has pushed back and said implementation will pretty much be up to him and Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. So we just handed over $2 trillion to a corrupt impeached president and his treasury secretary who earned the nickname Foreclosure King after the last recession. But on the plus side, I just bedazzled my jean jacket. It's the little things. Just listening to the way this administration explains the goal of the stimulus package gives you a sense of who they hope it helps. The assistance bill here, which does have growth incentives, will help lead us back to a very strong economic rebound before this year is over. I think that too. Thanks. I think we're going to have a tremendous rebound uh, at the end of the year, toward the end of the year. I think we're going to have a rebound like we have never seen before. Even now, it wants to rebound. You can see it. You feel it. It wants to rebound so badly. Why are we talking about the stock market like it's getting out of a long-term relationship? It wants to rebound so badly. Dust off that red dress, hook up with some randos, and just YOLO. Maybe the market doesn't need to rebound. Maybe it needs to learn to be alone. We're all doing it. Another thing to know about that clip, besides the very overeager predictions about the market, is that the guy talking about growth incentives is Trump's top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow. No, he's not an economist, but he did play one on CNBC for many years. Kudlow's entire legacy has been about bolstering finance at the expense of people's lives. In 2002, he advocated for the invasion of Iraq because the, quote, shock therapy of decisive war will elevate the stock market by a couple thousand points. And in 2011, right after an 8.9 earthquake and tsunami hit Japan, Kudlow said this. The human toll here yeah. looks to be much worse than the economic toll, and we can be grateful for that. Grateful? Okay. Now we know what the Kudlow family Thanksgiving looks like. Dear Lord, we are grateful for the gang violence in Central America that has provided the migrant labor that has given us this affordable meal. So while everyone in the healthcare community was pleading with Trump for weeks to take coronavirus seriously, Trump instead was listening attentively to people like Kudlow, who consistently puts markets over lives. And this is what he was saying back in early March about COVID-19 from the White House press briefing room. We don't actually know uh, what the magnitude of the virus is going to be, although frankly so far it looks relatively contained and we don't think most people, I mean the vast majority of Americans are not at risk for this virus. I mean do the math. A couple million isn't the vast majority. We'll have 328 million Americans left over. That's plenty of low-wage workers.
Finally, it turns out Trump's idea to have everyone back to work by Easter might have been spurred by a meeting earlier that day of some very Machiavellian minds. The White House earlier today convened a call with major Wall Street and hedge fund investors to get their views on what's happening in the markets and the U.S. economy. These individuals from Wall Street were on the call. Dan Loeb from hedge fund Third Point, uh, Jeff Sprecher from ICE and the New York Stock Exchange. Yeah, Jeff Sprecher, you might not have heard of him, but he is the CEO of the company that owns the New York Stock Exchange, which apparently is a thing. Uh, but you might have heard of his wife, Georgia Senator Kelly Loeffler who was one of a handful of senators to sell off stock after being briefed about coronavirus. Three million dollars of both of her and her husband's holdings. Like, how is that legal? How is any of this legal? It's probably all illegal. Because even the cronies in DC and Wall Street know this economy isn't rebounding. Not while the government continues to have no game plan to test, save lives, and quarantine communities. The economy isn't just a line that goes up or down. The economy is made up of people. People who make businesses and banks a lot of money. People who are now out of work. People who can't make rent this month and who are struggling to get healthy themselves. And people who sure as hell won't be rebounding with $1,200. Maybe it's time to rethink this death duel between people and the economy. And for once, let finance make the sacrifice. Uh-oh! Thank you once again for watching News Broke. We really appreciate it. So make sure to like this video and also share it. Share it with all the people who need to hear it and maybe people who don't want to hear it, but they need to hear it. And because the economy is made up of people, we want to hear from you. How are you doing? Um, do you still have a job? What's going on with unemployment? Um, how is your state handling this current crisis? Let us know in the comments below, and we will see you soon. Hang in there. Hello, that's uh, Francesca Fiorentini, a friend of this show, a, a, a comedian based in L.A., and her analysis of the coronavirus and relationship to working people. This is the B, and it's getting time for us to get out of here. Pass the baton over to Scotto Walker, his show, Flat Black Plastic. reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else they don't want you to organize. Your labor makes them rich. Of course they want you to get back to work. They don't want to give you any money. You might not work. 
have a good week and good work. Help each other. Lean on each other. We are the only thing we've got. It's obvious our government either doesn't care about us or they're willing to gamble away our futures. you know that the fifth annual mutiny radio comedy festival is march 1st through 7th 2020 with special podcasts and comedy shows 10 a.m to 10 p.m all week get your tickets now on eventbrite just search mutiny radio and get ready for 76 comics from all over the u.s coming for 66 programs in seven days all here at 2781 21st street in the heart of the mission or if you can't be with us listen live or podcast from anywhere in the world at www.mutinyradio.fm. Join us March 1st to 7th for these amazing events. What kind of a future? Blog Tigers, we fight for motorcyclists. We're not just motorcycle lawyers, we're part of the riding community. Blog Tigers watches over riding. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, we'll help you get your motorcycle repaired or replaced and assist you with your damaged gear, too. We're by your side every step of the way. With the Law Tigers, you never ride alone. If you're injured in a motorcycle accident, call 1-800-LAW-TIGERS or visit us on the web at lawtigers.com. The Law Tigers. California's you use motorcycle lawyers. Mr. Terry's Harris Law Firm, LLP. 180 Carmine Circle, Suite 300, Sacramento, California. 
in front of an audience like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I nearly thought of you. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvement. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radio. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radio. Yahoo! Hungry for a burger? Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counteroffer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counteroffer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counteroffer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counteroffer uses only fresh ingredients and never store-bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counteroffer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counteroffer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Van S. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counteroffer, baby. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Gather around me, sea dog, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com that's subliminalsf.myshopify.com and experience subliminal sf tired of paying too much for your internet contracts and hidden fees got you down 
Tired of supporting the same big cable companies that lobby against a free and open internet? Get Monkey Brains! Monkey Brains is a local internet provider who doesn't sell your data, bind you down with contracts, or trick you with hidden monthly fees. We're honest, local, and 100% net neutral. Residential internet for only $35 a month, business packages starting at $75 a month. Go to monkeybrains.net and sign up today. Asiento, take a seat at Asiento on 21st and Bryant. Meet friends for a drink, have delicious tapas, and a relaxed community atmosphere. Asiento, honestly, is a wonderful place. They have incredible bartenders and board games all over the walls, trivia on Mondays, Taco Tuesdays, First Wednesday, live jazz, live DJs Thursday, parties. The food is Darn good. Special happy hour prices all night long with your Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival ticket March 1st through 5th. Check out the schedule at www.asientosf.com. Come take a seat. I had a date there and it did not go well. But it wasn't the fault of the place. They were very nice. Asiento. Rio began her life in 1978 as a leather Brazilian gay bar. We are an LGBTQ plus space who is welcoming to all good people. We actively invest in communities to promote social change. We actively invest in our local arts and music scene to give space for artists. We actively pursue underserved communities in the use of our space. We are an awesome supporter of the fifth annual Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival hosting an incredible offside show Wednesday, March 4th, 9 to 11 p.m. with LGBTQ+, and allies.